CEE Central Europe Explained An IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group Episode 4 Current Steel versus Iron Lessons for Today European Collusion and History of European Reapproachment with Ambassador ML Briggs Welcome to everyone in this new episode of CEE, Central Europe Explained. My name is Daniel Martinek and I am a research associate at IDM, Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe in Vienna. I'm here today with Ambassador Emil Briggs, Director of the Vienna School of International Studies and at the same time member of the IDM Managing Board in Vienna. Hello Ambassador Briggs and thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure, welcome. Today we are going to discuss together the creation of the EU and its past, current and future developments. Coal and steel versus iron, lessons for today, is the title of today's episode, where we focus on Europe in collusion and history of European reapproachment. So, Ambassador Brinks, uh, starting with an historical perspective, uh, the Iron Curtain divided Europe right after the Second World War and was the symbol for long-lasting Cold War that was dominating the continent for decades. Which role, in your opinion, did this geopolitical conflict play in the implementation process uh, of the European Coal and Steel Community and, later on, of the European Union? Well, the most interesting thing is that the European integration process is not a product of the Cold War. Um, one might even say it's the other, it was the other way around. Uh, this uh, integration process started with the idea that after these two world wars in Europe, with the given situation of so many uh, states and nation states, we need to overcome historical conflicts. Uh, and this is not by chance uh, that it was the most important conflict of the 20th century in Europe, the conflict between France and Germany, which was at the, at the really foundation uh, of this process. Uh, and uh, secondly, the, it's very important to understand that this process did not start uh, with a real integration in the case of politics, culture, uh, and you mentioned it, but with something that was regarded to be essential for making it impossible to start war again. That was cooperation in, in steel uh, um, uh, and coal and iron, Uh, and so at the very founding bed of the European integration was the economic cooperation uh, in order to make war impossible uh, and the idea that the long-lasting conflict between these two continental powers, France and Germany, can be overcome. Uh, but... Um, this was not the end of the story, because when this integration process continued, it became more and more clear that there was this Iron Curtain, which divided the idea of a Western Europe from an Eastern Europe. Uh, and uh, there were various attempts in the in the early times of the, of the integration to overcome this. Just think about the, the Marshall Plan concept, uh, where there was a chance that a country like Czechoslovakia could join it, but uh, as soon as the Soviets realized that it, this would mean integration, also possibly economic and political integration in a, in a Western concept, they did not allow that to go forward. Uh, and, but, and at the same time, 
for the Western powers, it was suddenly uh, became obvious that if there is a European integration of this economic part, which might become a political one, uh, what about the cooperation with the transatlantic partner? United States of America. So NATO appeared uh, on the radar to have a, a, a very important European integration project uh, where the America is not only involved but leading until nowadays. Uh, so you see there were a lot of original sins, you might call it already, in the beginning of the integration process, uh, which, uh, but which did not really hinder the integration to go forward. Uh, so this is clear, but it meant from the very beginning that uh, um, uh, this idea that the European Union can be can resemble Europe uh, was never really true. It was always uh, a concept for peacemaking in parts of Europe uh, and cooperation in parts of Europe. Uh, but the uh, assessment uh, of and the self understanding of this integration process that this is the nucleus of a common Europe. And actually, this idea became more and more popular because there was enlargement. Uh, as we know, in the early 70s, enlargement uh, of uh, northern, rich, richer countries, uh, and the end of the 70s and early 80s, uh, the southern rim, the after the totalitarian period of southern rim, uh, and, and, and certainly then in the 90s, uh, the uh, integration of, of countries like Sweden and Austria and Finland, and then later on the, the Visegrad countries, uh, and Croatia um, uh, and Bulgaria, as, we, as, as in Romania, as we know. Uh, so uh, it is very clear that there must be collusions in the idea of how we see the integration process, because there is this uh, inner drive of the process to cover the whole of Europe, but at the same time there are blocks built in against it. I would say, for instance, the, uh, the role of NATO is blocking the integration of the European Union becoming a real U European force. Uh, maybe some member countries would not agree with this position, but it's certainly for a country like Austria, this, this is a problem. And when you look now into the discussions between the US administration and the German administration, for instance, about defense policy in Europe, you can see that there is a starting confrontation between who defends Europe, um, whatever what it means. Uh, so I would say uh, the beginning of coal and steel and iron uh, was important to make it possible to uh, to uh, to integrate the free part of Europe, uh, but it is, it's from the very beginning it it created also problems. You mentioned this uh, NATO structure, but I think some member countries or non-member countries uh, regard uh, NATO structure actually as uh, the very basis of uh, defense mechanism of Europe. So. Uh, how would you solve this this problem to make Europe more European, as you said? Um, well, it becomes uh, more and more clear that uh, the Pax Americana, which was an idea of the time after the Second World War, uh, is getting less and less important and less and less relevant. It is still there, obviously, as we can see. Uh, but when, when you look into the, the real situation, um, I don't think that a majority of Europeans um, will continue to believe that we need this missile defense against Russian attacks. 
It's different in some countries with uh, former Soviet experience, like the Baltics, and but also Poland. Uh, but overall, uh, I think this idea is becoming less and less real. Uh, so that means um, in Europe the idea is growing uh, that do we need the American defense shield or should we have a European defense? Uh, and maybe this is the precondition for having a European foreign policy. So all the discussions about the common European and security policy depend also on the defense issues. Uh, and as long as we cannot solve this problem, so we're always trying to uh, sort of knit over it, saying that, that the NATO is, is doing its part and the EU is doing its part and we are cooperating on so many issues. Yes, fine, that's okay. Uh, but uh, there is a final problem in it which we in the European Union will have to solve in the future. So you touch upon already that maybe the uh, people's acceptations of European Union and of NATO structure in general might be different already uh, today. So I would like to ask you, how are these expectations changing during the time? What were expectations back then during the time of the Soviet Union? What are uh, current expectations? Yeah, well, the question is, what is more basis of the European integration? Is it the idea of welfare and economic success, or is it the idea of, of freedom, liberty, security? Uh, and I think there, is, there has always to be a balance in the way we, we, we create a, a, common, a common Europe. Uh, and uh, it uh, looks different from different parts of the geographical Europe. Um, it is fully understandable that the former Warsaw Pact member countries feel that NATO and security issues and defense issues are more important to their country than the European Union. And uh, by the way, I see this uh, for of one of the reasons why uh, the European Union has so many problems with Poland, for instance. Because uh, for Poland, uh, NATO membership and the US partnership looks simply to be more important than the European integration project. And this is not understood in many Western European countries. So, so there start already the problems that we have. Uh, and uh, um, as I said, it, it's not possible to overcome this notion that uh, it's either security uh, or its economic success, we will not overcome uh, as long as we don't create a European Union uh, which uh, is it a player on its own. Uh, and that means nowadays uh, being more less dependent on the United States of America, frankly speaking. What you just described, we also witnessed this during the corona crisis in the in the last couple of months, that when it comes to medical um, material and so on, we were just, mm, we don't have, we didn't have a sufficient of these. So I think it also relates uh, to, to these fields, not only to the defense. So my question would be how we can overcome these various uh, national, let's say, interests of member uh, EU member countries, because we, we also still can see even after 30 years that there is this east-west divide. People are speaking about multi-speed Europe. The perception of uh, citizens in central, eastern, southeastern Europe can be perceived in the West as a, a second-class citizens, let's say. And since you have also many experiences uh, in Austrian uh, diplomatic services, And Austria always 
cares about its role, let's say, as a bridge between the old and uh, new and future ones, uh, member states. Uh, I would like to ask you how we can overcome uh, this divide and how we can even, is it possible even to find a consensus amongst uh, so many EU member states, also regarding if it comes to enlargement to the southeastern part of mm -hmm. Europe? It's obvious that the divisions in the European Union are growing. There is this east-west divide and also the north-south divide, and I'm not sure which one is, is, is more dangerous. They're both actually very dangerous. Uh, and you're also right saying that Austria has always looked for a situation of being a bridge builder. Not a bridge, but a bridge builder. Uh, and uh, this has to do with our multinational tradition uh, in the last 500 years and, and, and the idea that uh, we still have this in our genes, this sort of mentality of, of, of understanding uh, everybody who is around us. By the way, it includes also that we want to be loved by everybody around us without loving ourselves, some of our neighbors. But this is maybe beyond the point here. Um, how do we overcome this? Uh, I think, first of all, let's realize that it exists and um, what it means for the individual member countries. Uh, I would say um, um, point number one is here that we are falling back on the position, uh, like Charles de Gaulle said, that we have uh, Europa der Vaterländer, a Europe of fatherlands, that the nation-state Uh, gets control of uh, things that he th still thinks he can uh, offer more direct, um, ask for more direct solidarity than the, the European Union. And you mentioned already the COVID-19 crisis where for a majority of people uh, the, uh, the anchor of last resort was the nation state and was the, the health system in the, national, in, the national, in the member states of the European Union because... This is competence of each member state, not of the uh, of the uh, of Brussels, not of the European Union. So we have to uh, really look into: uh, Do we have a system in the in the European Union which allows us uh, to give to the member states uh, all those possibilities that they want to have in this sort of crisis situation? Uh, and coordinate only in those areas where it is positive to coordinate and where it's helpful to coordinate. Uh, and there are many areas, not only the health uh, pro problem, where I think we can still look for these sort of things where uh, we may act differently. Secondly, uh, uh, if we want to do more together in the European Union, uh, we have to be um, frank uh, and say, at the moment, we have double standards in various areas in the European Union. Uh, the way we treat uh, some of the, of the newer members in, in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, as far as minorities is concerned, um, uh, nationalism is concerned, um, all these issues, uh, is, uh, is much more critical than uh, what we say about other parts of the European Union. Just one example, Spain. When you look into the Spain, the traditional system of Spain, when you look into uh, how the confrontation between Catalonia, the, the Basque, and the center in Madrid is dealt with, the European Union is not interfering at all. Uh, and when the Catalonians ask for support, even the, the, the president of the European Commission is saying, no, no, we have no competence there. Uh, but when something happens in Warsaw or something happens uh, in, in Hungary, I'm not defending many of these things, but it's a different response. Uh, 
So these sort of double standards are, are very not very helpful for 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 for, for the trust that people should have in this European Union. Uh, and the third point, I think, is that we should try to be bold. If we really feel that the integration process can go forward, uh, we need to talk about education and culture as something which the European Union should do together. Much more than it is done now, we need to put on the organizational side competences to Brussels, common competences in the field of, of culture and education, which is, I'm afraid, not very realistic. But if we really want to change the situation in Europe, uh, we should do this. Uh, and I would say uh, Austria would be a good place to start such a discussion, discussion because we understood, for instance, that it was exactly these issues which brought the end to the Habsburg monarchy. It was because we did not respond to the cultural uh, needs uh, of, the, of the parts of the Union. It was because uh, in our educational system there were, we couldn't create a common idea, a multinational idea. Uh, so we should learn from these sort of failures that we have experienced in Central Europe for the future of the European Union. We should at least try to. If we don't uphold, uh, if we make these piecemeal reforms, uh, we continue with them, we might, uh, uh, we might end at the point where uh, even the breakup of this union is possible. Look at what, uh, the, the Brexit situation, uh, which obviously uh, is not uh, a special case of the United Kingdom not understanding um, um, that they are also part of a family here in Europe, but it's about they don't accept this piecemeal going, going forward, which did, they say we did never accept. Uh, and this may happen not today, but tomorrow also in other parts of the, of the, of the European Union. So I would be uh, very careful continuing with this peaceful attempt. Uh, and if we make bigger steps, which I see necessary, uh, we have to convince majorities in the member countries, uh, because without asking them, without referenda about these issues, there is no way forward. I strongly believe that after Schengen uh, and after Euro, the next big project will not be accepted by the Europeans without referenda uh, in, in all the member countries, which is very difficult. So you mentioned already that the education and culture are two fields which should be on the agenda for the years to come. We can see still that this nation-oriented uh, mindset is still rooted deeply in the perception of people and I think that this fact also contributes significantly to the negative, in many cases negative perception of the EU. So do you think that uh, some European agenda in education and culture could overcome uh, these obstacles? Could you tell us or shed more light on concrete proposals which you would like to Uh, present uh, regarding, for example, the education or culture, which uh, strategies uh, should be um, should be introduced in order to integrate more in these two fields. Well, normally I would say if you want to change something in politics, you have to uh, start by convincing uh, people that they uh, that they want to have these changes. Uh, in the case of the European Union, I am not fully convinced that this is, is working because just think about how many intellectuals have been asking about the European Republic and so on. Uh, I think in the, in the context of the European Union, we have to go into the organizational structure. 
So we, it, is, it is the only way forward, I see, is that we can convince uh, the responsible ministers for education and culture uh, to discuss the possibility of, of a common competence, a shared at least common competence uh, on education uh, and culture. But this would be a real game changer because just think about school books. It's absolutely a national competence. So every school book, history books, can write in whatever they want, more or less whatever they want. And the consequence is that we don't even have common history books for neighboring countries. We are trying hard, uh, as you know, between uh, the Czech Republic and, 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 and Austria, there is a common history book now. Uh, and there is even one between Poland and Russia. We tried at least, but it's not working. It's not working in a European context. Uh, uh, and this will only be possible uh, if we try to make this move to the to the European level uh, in the field of education. Uh, and culture uh, looks to be easier because when you ask uh, artists or um, uh, other cultural figures, they always say we don't care about the nation. We care about the world, we care about progress, we care about fairness and we care about Black Lives Matter or whatever. But in reality, they are very much dependent on, on these uh, nation states, uh, in some countries more, in other countries less. But in Austria, we see in the COVID crisis how much artists are dependent on, on, on the money and support they get from the nation state, not from Europe or somewhere else. Uh, and this is true for, for, for many countries. Uh, I know the example of the United Kingdom where, where there it doesn't play a real matter because uh, artists have never been really financed with exceptions by the, pub, by the public coffers, by public budgets. But it's different in Central Europe where we are used to that culture is supported. I'm very much in favor of it, but it means, again, there is some dependency on the nation-state, on, uh, on, on the way they, they present uh, cultural products uh, and so on. Um, and there, I think, we have chances to go forward. And again, Austria might be a good example because we have the most important uh, culture festival, uh, at least the European culture festival. We have the Salzburg Festival every year uh, where there have been already initiatives to create something like a cultural double was uh, a meeting of, of minds every year during the festival, uh, which is what Davos means for, the, for, for business and for the economy. These are very good ideas which we should follow uh, to make these changes possible. Thank you very much, uh, Ambassador Briggs. I think it was a, a nice uh, conclusion uh, for the end of our discussion. Thank you very much for sharing uh, with us your opinions and uh, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. All the best. Thank you. So this was the CEE, Central Europe Explained, an IDM podcast powered by Erste Group. Thank you for listening and see you next week for a new episode. IDM Podcast. Institute für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa. Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. European Perspectives. Regional Actions. Cooperation and expertise since 1953.